most of you know that I was a youth minister for most of my ministerial life. I love youth ministry. Um, a lot of what we do as a church is basically youth ministry as a church, uh, which is why we never start on time because we're usually uh, dealing with the fact that talking and eating together is more important. Uh, if you look at it, we have several references to Jesus going to synagogue, which would be the equivalent of his church. But we have a lot more references to him eating. So I, I think that should kind of hint to something. Um, but but one of the things that being a youth minister meant was that I was... Um, anytime that there was a thorn in the pastor's side, I usually thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, not because I didn't like my pastors. The pastors that I worked for and with, I usually loved uh, truthfully, all but one of them, and I loved him at first too, and then found out he was doing some stuff on a computer he shouldn't be doing, and I still loved him. I just didn't enjoy working for him. Uh, but one of the ones I w- worked for uh, was a great guy who, have you ever met somebody who's, who, he's a really great guy and a great person, could be a great female, and they're wonderful as long as they're not in charge, but when they are in charge, they're great as long as everything goes according to their plan and the second something disrupts it, it is, is as though somebody has just killed their dog in front of them. Yeah. Okay, the, you know, their plan has just has been messed up and that, that's the worst thing that could possibly happen. Well, one of the pastors that I, I worked for and with uh, was a gentleman named Brother Wayne. He was a great guy, just wonderful and 99.9.9.9. Actually, you can't have more than one decimal, can you? But, you know, what I'm saying is most of the time, everything went according to his plan. It was great. He he really, he planned out worship services uh, more than anybody I've ever been around. He would work with the minister of music. They had every minute labeled. Now, you could describe that as bad, but it worked. It was it was great. But I mean, I would go up and I was told, uh, you're doing announcements. You have 90 seconds to do these announcements. And I would have to practice them, announcements, to make sure that I got them in the 90 seconds. Because if I didn't get them in the 90 seconds, the next person was coming up and was just, I was going to be slowly encouraged to go off. Not like the Academy Awards where they, you know, start playing the music and tell you to get away, but close. And I remember one evening... This was probably 2002 or so. Cell phones, you know, a lot of people had them at that point, but they're, they're not as just all invasive as they were now. It was still at the point where you could go into some place and say, please turn off your cell phones now. And most of the people in the room would do that. Now, ladies, you haven't been here before. We don't ask you to turn your cell phone off. To be completely honest, what I would hope would happen is you would hear something from somebody in the room that's so amazing and points you to Jesus that you want to tell other people about it. Use your cell phone for that. Matter of fact, uh, the scripture is always put up uh, on a website, message.sptapestry.org, so you can always see the scripture and interact that way. But at that point, you would go into a church and there would be something on the bulletin that says, please turn your cell phones off. And Brother Wayne hated cell phone rings during church drove him nuts now he wouldn't you know just stop the service and and embarrass somebody but you could tell if a cell phone went off it would just it would just kind of kick him off his train tracks okay just off a little and then one night and see every time i mention cell phones i can guarantee you that pete's going to call me (laughs) is it is it you right now because it's yeah (laughs) knew it one night It started ringing. You know how when your cell phone rings, unless you're me and Pete's calling me, um, how you fumble real quick to get it. You you can always tell in a crowd 
whose cell phone it is because they're like, oh, I got to get it. And they're, they're, they're fumbling in their jacket or their pocket or their purse to, to get it. Nobody. This was a church that probably in the room that night, there were probably five, 600 people. Nobody. So it goes through the full ring, which means you get four or five rings and then it goes to voicemail and it stops. So you're hearing, you know, it's some great, you know, I don't remember what it was, but some great ringtone. Because Linus and Lucy is one of the greatest songs ever from Peanuts. And it goes off and it goes off for the full four rings and stops. Now, if somebody's trying to typically get you on, on, on your cell phone, what do they do if you, if you don't call back? Yeah, they, they don't go, I'll just leave a, a voicemail for Robert and he'll get it. What they think is, Robert just did not hear it. I'm going to call again. So what happened was the ring went the entire time and Brother Wayne's like, really? 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 And then it stopped. And about five minutes later, they called again. It just went through the entire thing. Went to voicemail. About five minutes later, they called again. Now, what we did not realize at the time, because, I mean, Brother Wayne is now at the point where he's saying, all right, this is really not funny. The third time, he is, he is no longer just like kind of perturbed. He is, this is not funny. Somebody thinks this is funny. It's not funny. And what had happened was one of the people in the band had left their jacket on the stage and had left their phone in the stage. And I knew who it was, this guy named Rob. And, and Rob was like, I don't know what to do. Because he wasn't sure what to do. At this point, do I walk up on stage and get my phone and turn it off? Because there's no hiding that at all. Or do I just keep letting it ring, hoping that whoever calls me realizes I'm not going to pick up the phone? Do you have a friend that just really thinks that if you don't pick up, that you just really haven't heard? And they call over and over and over and over and over again. Okay. I have friends like that. I had a friend in Baton Rouge who had obsessive compulsive disorder. And if he called and it went to voicemail and I tried to call him back, I could never get him because he was going to call nine times no matter what. So I just reached a point where I would have to just count nine times and then I could call him up because I knew who it was. Because <laughs> it went ahead. The sixth time it went through it, Rob finally went up. It, it had moved from slight irritation to Brother Wayne almost blowing up and having a coronary on the stage to humor to, again, this is absurd. And it was all because there was disruption to what Brother Wayne had planned out. It was a funny moment that night. What we're going to be talking about tonight is the beginning of the book of Philippians. And the entire church starts from a disruption. The entire church is a disruption over and over and over again. We're going to read from the very first chapter of Philippians, but really what we're going to focus on instead is going to be the 16th chapter of the Acts of the Apostle. So Will's going to operate the scripture for me behind me, but I would encourage you to read from your own Bible or from the Tapestry Bibles. Uh, In the Tapestry Bibles, it's page 830. And this is what the word of the Lord says. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about, about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending, or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your, your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So we are going to be spending about eight weeks going through the letter to the Philippians. And instead of really going into the first chapter tonight, what we're going to do instead is we're going to talk about the church in Philippi. Now, this is the, the Mediterranean, the ancient Near East, if you want to say. Jesus would have been around there. The church in Philippi is around there. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a huge Roman city. It is one of the major Roman cities in the area. Uh, this is, if you know anything of geography, this would be the Macedonian or Macedonian region. I know Macedonian sounds weird, but people are now saying that that is the proper pronunciation for what most of us were raised saying Macedonian. Uh, but you'll hear people every now and then say Macedonian, which actually makes me think of Macedonian notes. Not Macedonian, Macedonian nuts, which makes me happy because I like them. But they're Hawaiian, aren't they? Are, are, are they Hawaiian? Yeah. I don't know. I'm off topic. But it's a big deal. Um, if you've ever heard of a guy named Alexander the Great, his father was a guy named Philip II, and he is the one who founded the city, a.k.a. why it would be called Philippi. It was named after him, and then something really, really major happened. All right, Julius, excuse me, not Julius Caesar, William Shakespeare wrote a play about Julius Caesar. What happened in that event, that play, that major event? They killed him. Very good. Any play where there's violence involved, I, I, I know I'm a Christian. I know I'm a pastor. I'm basically uh, a, a nonviolent person. I'm pretty close to being a pacifist, but not quite. Um, and yet still a play that involves killing somebody, I will go watch it. I have seen Julius Caesar. It's a great play. But they kill him. And does anybody know what happens in Roman history, not just in Shakespearean plays, but in Roman history, what happens when Julius Caesar is killed? Yes, there's a civil war that takes place. And there is a battle that ultimately takes place where Brutus is defeated by the guy who will be called Octavian. And it takes place in Philippi. Because of this, Octavian is a really, really smart individual. And what he does is he takes the vast majority of his soldiers that he no longer needs and he gives them pensions and he gives them land. And would you like to take a wild guess where he gives them this land? In Philippi. And not only is he really smart with his own soldiers, but he says, hey, there are all these other soldiers who fought for Brutus they despise me. I bet I could win them over if I give them pensions and I give them land. And now they're indebted to me. Would you like to know where he gave them pensions and he gave them land? Philippi. So you have an amazing number of soldiers that are loyal to Rome that are living in Philippi, which takes Philippi and makes it not just a Macedonian or a Macedonian or a Macadamian, not, uh, not just that type of city. It is very much a Roman city. They dress Roman. 
There's a large percentage of the population that speaks Latin. Imagine going to Wisconsin Rapids. I told you, I was trained real quickly when I moved here. Jan, you'll like this. I make fun of Wisconsin Rapids a lot, don't I, Jan? Missy behind you, guess where she's from? Actually, she's from, you're from Port Edwards though, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. But she said Wisconsin Rapids, and all I could think of was, all I'm going to do is offend her tonight. Imagine though, if, if people in Wisconsin Rapids came and took over part of Stevens Point, and they made people, not made, they started dressing like people in Wisconsin Rapids and talking like people in Wisconsin Rapids, because we, we know they have a different accent. But they're still in the middle of Stevens Point. There's a lot of influence there. Philippi is a Greek city that has a tremendous amount of Roman influence in it. Which is why there's not a synagogue there. Now, if you've ever read the New Testament or or read about Paul's missionary journeys or studied that before, you know that he had this strategy. And his strategy typically was he would go into a city and he would find the Jewish synagogue there and he would go to the Jewish synagogue and he would preach about Jesus because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He does not do that here because Philippi is such a Roman city, there is not a Jewish synagogue there. Instead... He finds a group of women by a river. And you're going to find, you're going to see references to women in, Philipp, in the letter to the churches in Philippi a lot because women are hugely influential there. So, let's talk. If you read the entire chapter of the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, you're going to see the start, other than like the first three verses, you're going to see the start of the church in Philippi. And it happens in basically three, you could kind of say four different events. The first one is this. This is a lady in purple. You know how you can tell that? She's purple. That's right. And, and there's one lady in the New Testament who is specifically mentioned as a dealer of purple, which it makes me laugh. That's the New, the New International Version translation. A lot of people would say a seller of purple, but dealer of purple sounds so much more edgy. Doesn't it? It's like, kid, you want some purple? I mean, it's just, it's so different. I've never heard somebody describe, you know, she was a dealer of purple. I just kind of expect her, you know, to have her pants sagging and and to be a part of a, a purple gang or something. But she is a dealer in purple, which means she was probably a wealthy individual. Purple is is a very vibrant color. It is the color of royalty. You're dealing in a time period where while they had dyes, their dyes would not have been as vibrant. Uh, and purple was, was not reserved for kings, but it usually cost more money than anything else. So usually only the rich and the noble could afford it in the first place. If, if you had a friend who was a Jaguar dealer or an Audi dealer or a Mercedes-Benz dealer, what would you guess about their socioeconomic status? You, all right, I didn't hear what you said. Pretty high. Pretty high. I saw Pete do this. All right. I mean, let's face it. Many of you have seen my car that I bought from, from Eric for $100, and it is worth every penny. <laughs> not, not once. That's true. There are three individuals in this room that have owned that car. And it's making weird noises now. It always is fun when I drive it. And like Noah this past week was like, Dad, what's that sound? And I'm like, just don't worry about it. <laughs> Just don't worry about it. I have AAA for one reason, and that's Fred the Sentra. Guys, if, if, I, if you saw me drive up in Fred the Sentra, you wouldn't think, you know what? That guy probably owns a luxury car dealership. 
No. People who own luxury uh, car dealerships and luxury boutiques and such, they typically dress a certain way. Now, they may be in debt to do it, but they dress a certain way because they're trying to convey this. Lydia was probably decently well off. And she is the very first convert in Philippi to Christianity. She is, she is Jewish. She is, she is following the, the Jewish way. And she is at the river in a prayer meeting. And Paul meets her there and begins to talk to her. And she comes to the realization that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. The church starts with Lydia. It's interesting because it's disruptive to her life. If you know anything at all about, about the Christian heritage at that time, becoming a Christian is not a step up in, in the social ladder. It, it, one, it means you're going to be involved with people who are going to be on the seedier side of, of the nation, of the empire. Um, Jesus says uh, to his, his disciples when basically uh, they're like, hey, we could have sold something and given it to the poor. And he responds with the poor you will have with you always. But one interpretation of, of that is saying that... The, the poor should always be with the church. It's a sign of, of the church. That we should always have those who are considered the margins of society with us. And that was very true then. To become a Christian did not help your, your social status at all. If anything, it hurt it. It could cost you your life. But it definitely did not in, encourage you to step up and up and up. And the Roman society was all about getting bigger and better. Thankfully, it's nothing like us at all. Nobody here ever strives to get more and, and be higher up and be respected more. We're nothing like them at all. Thankfully, please and, and, you know, figure out from my tone that I'm being very sarcastic. Church started with a woman who probably was very well respected, who probably had good social status, who probably economically was very well off. Joining a fringe movement. And following Jesus. The thing that happens after that is that, that Paul runs into a fortune teller. And I love this. You read the story and the fortune teller says, these men are followers of the way of Jesus Christ and they are going to tell you how to be saved. But she's not saying that in a good way. She's not like, hey, you should really listen to these people. They're awesome. What she's saying is, avoid these men. They're going to change your life. And she says it over and over and over again. And Paul gets irritated at the fact that she keeps on following them and saying this. And she casts this evil spirit that is in her out of it. Out of her, not it. He basically goes, I'm tired of you pointing out who we are. Like he's a secret agent or something. And you know, just tired of you pointing out who we are. Be gone, evil spirit. And she becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. It's awesome. It's a disruption, but it's awesome. But she was owned. She was a slave and she was owned by a couple of men. And those men were using her to make money. That, that evil spirit that was in her, that was helping her to point out people's fortunes, people would come and say, should I make this business deal or not? And she would go, oh, you should do this or not. And, and they were using her for profit. And when she became a follower of Jesus Christ, she couldn't use that evil spirit anymore. And so the men got ticked off. You read it and it says, this guy is doing things that are against our way. Paul is encouraging people to do things that are different from the way we do things. He's encouraging people not to believe in our gods. And they get Paul thrown in jail because he has disrupted their business. 
What I love about, about Jesus is he, he disrupts things over and over and over again. If you read the New Testament and you read it as a story of disruptions, you will see where Jesus steps in and he just messes up everything over and over and over again. And I don't mean messing up in a bad way. He messes it up for good. But whatever's planned, he just kind of goes, yeah, that's not the way it's going to work. He, he goes into people's lives and they have everything set up and they figured it out. And he steps in and he says, follow me. And now you're no longer on your way to becoming the, the, uh, the bubble gump of fishing. You are no longer that. Instead, now you're following Jesus Christ. Or you go in and you are this religious authority and you've got all the answers and Jesus is silent before you and embarrasses you by his silence having more truth to it than all of your words. He disrupts, he disrupts, he disrupts. It's so cool. And the church begins with all these disruptions. If you read the next thing, that what happens is Paul is thrown into jail. And while he's thrown into jail, the very man there, the jailer, who is in charge of making sure that he is shackled and he is taken care of. And we're going to talk about Roman jails. They are nothing like modern day jails. Uh, modern day jails are a modern day experience. Roman jails were basically, we are holding you for trial or we're holding you to kill you. That's basically it. And, and Paul was put into jail for them to figure out what was going on. And God responds because uh, Paul is singing and there are earthquakes. And the jailer suddenly goes, oh, my goodness, how can I become a follower of this God of yours? And Paul leads the jailer to knowing him, which messes up everything. Disruption, disruption, disruption. The church in Philippi happens because Paul preaches the truth and it messes up everything around it. The entire church starts from that. So, here's what I want us to talk about briefly tonight. So many people think of Jesus as coming in and just being this nice guy. But when you read the New Testament, there are lots of things he says where he says, I am coming here to mess things up because they're not right. I'm coming to bring a better order, but bringing that better order means messing up the present order. I'm going to just show you two scriptures, but there are lots of them. One is this. I have, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? If you've ever messed around with fire, you know that it is beyond control. My kids have seen it. My wife will ex- explain it to you. I have burned off my left eyebrow brow twice. I have burned off my right eyebrow three times. The hair on my arm has disappeared. Why? Because I was playing around with fire, and it went way beyond my control. When I lived in Missouri, Missouri has leaves kind of like Wisconsin where they all fall down at once. Everything's beautiful for one second and then suddenly God flips the switch and it goes from everything's gorgeous and just kind of covers your yard. This year, I don't know about your yard, but it basically happened for me right after Plover had picked up all the leaves. It's like God said, eh, just going to play around with you guys this year. Plover picks up the leaves and then two days later, everybody's yard's still covered just covered with snow now which makes it look nice until spring but in missouri you could burn the leaves can, can you burn leaves in wisconsin rapids you have no idea you really are from port edwards aren't you <laughs> now stephen's point you they'll pick them up at your curb but they have to be bagged correct i love the fact some of you live in stephen's point you're like i don't know there could be like you know feet of debris leaves in your yard for all I know. Okay, Adam just said yes. Is that correct? All right. And Plover, you just make a big pile and, and they'll come by with this cool vacuum truck and they just kind of suck it up. In, in Carthage, Missouri, which is where I lived for quite some time, you could burn them. 
I love burning leaves. They're so awesome. It's just, it's great. It's an excuse for fire. And all you have to do is have a little bit of kerosene because kerosene's a slow burn. Now, for some of you, you may not know this, but kerosene is a slow burning fuel. I have seen somebody play a game called hot potato where they took a, a tennis ball, they soaked it in kerosene, they lit it, and then they would throw it in a circle to people because it's a slow burn. So you could pick the ball up and throw it as long as you didn't hold on to it that long. The beauty of a slow burn is you light it and it just kind of goes... It's a nice little controlled fire. Gasoline is a fast burn. I know this because I experienced it firsthand. The way I experienced it firsthand was I ran out of kerosene and I thought, I'll just use a little bit of gasoline. I'll pour some gasoline on these. And then I had this brilliant idea. I thought, you know what? I probably put too much gasoline on there. I'm going to wait about 10 minutes and just kind of let it dissipate a little bit. And then I'll light it. And then I was worried that I might have let it wait too long, so I poured a little bit more gasoline on it. Now, what actually catches fire in gasoline? It's the fumes. So all I did was allow the fumes to just spread more. All I remember is... The stories I heard was that my wife was in, in the kitchen, and the side of the house that was there, there were two windows. And she said that she heard... And she looked up, And all she saw from both windows was orange coming in. Neighbors five houses away came through. They were like, it sounded like a jet came by. It just... (laughs) And Pam walked out and I'm blowing smoke out of my mouth. (laughs) See, fire is not controllable. And some of you are laughing, but let's face it. Some of the guys in the room, you have burned off body hair before. And to the ladies. There we go. Guys... There we go. You can do anything in Texas. That is one messed up state. <laughs> Live there for a while. You could probably, you know, throw the leaves up and shoot them. <laughs> Which would do no good. <laughs> what are you doing? I'm mulching leaves. <laughs> so, guys, fire's not controllable. And Jesus says that he came to set a fire. Fire consumes. Fire eats. Here, here's another passage that... Jesus says, he says, think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. I think I used King James off of this. Guys, now he's not meaning I'm just here to destroy. He's meaning basically the opposite of what we so often think. See, we so often think Christians are nice people. And, and I know many of you. Actually, I know all of you, except for our two guests tonight. And they're probably nice people too, even though she comes from Wisconsin Rapids. That's like the third time tonight. I'm so sorry. You are never coming back again, are you? <laughs> Don't go to that church. Because uh, Christians weren't thought of as nice. They were not thought of as, these are really swell people. That We just don't like their religious beliefs. Jesus was was considered a threat. And early Christians were considered a threat to the Roman Empire. They were not persecuted because of their beliefs, and yet they were persecuted because of their beliefs. Most of the Romans didn't know what the Christians believed, but they thought, these are bad people. For example, so often we just think, early Christians were hated for their morals. Most of them weren't. Early Christians focused a lot on sexual morality, just like we we still do now. 
And most Romans knew that. The early Christians were really, really picky about making sure that sex was within the confines of marriage. Romans didn't hate that. A lot of Romans didn't practice it, but they didn't hate it. They didn't despise it. They saw the early Christians and they thought of them as a threat to the Roman Empire. I've mentioned this before. It's four, four, I just did this and said four. Four specific reasons that early Christians were hated. And many of you know it because I've talked about it before. Uh, but they were thought to be atheist, which makes me laugh. But if you think about it, you probably know instantly why they were thought to be atheist. Because early Christians, just like Jews, would not have a, a graven image. They would not have an idol. Romans were really good on saying, hey, you can believe whatever you want as long as you let us you know, bring that God in and you worship the emperor. So give us a copy of your God and we'll put it in the pantheon and, and you can worship it. That'll be great. And early Christians said our God is beyond you know, an idol. He's beyond creation. You cannot sculpt him into wood or stone. And so early Christians were thought to be atheists. Early Christians were thought to be, this is my personal favorite, uh, cannibals. I love that. Really? <laughs> Think about it. What do we do that, that people go, they're eating people. Communion, the Lord's Supper. They heard Christians talk about eating the body and the blood, and Romans thought, these people are sacrificing babies. We have actual documentation talking about a theory, because they knew that we would eat bread, that there was theories that there were babies cooked into the loaves that were then given out as the Lord's Supper. No, they weren't. (laughs) It's just, you know, people fear the unknown. The other thing was they were thought to be incestuous. Now, I'm from Alabama, so I have experience with... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> anything you ever, have you ever seen anything done at a church that might, people might go, whoa, that's brothers and sisters you know, being married and such? Yes, brothers and sisters in Christ. Down south, it's not uncommon for, uh, for people to say brother and sister, not typically in the church, but like, uh, as in you know, everyone else. But the ministers, you'll usually call brother or sister. Uh, it's pretty common. And early Christians would refer to their spouses as sister and brother. And the Romans went, these people are incestuous. You know, brother Robert and, and sister Pam are married together. That's awful. Those are three things. And the other thing is they were thought to be bad citizens, actually traitors. And the main reason for that is throughout the Roman Empire, there was this thing called the emperor cult. The emperor cult was one of the the unifying factors in the Roman Empire. And basically it was this. You can worship whatever God you want as long as you will also say that that Caesar is Lord. Curious. That he is Lord. And sometimes it would be Lord and Savior. Specifically in Philippi, they would say Lord and Savior. And early Christians said, we'll pay our taxes, we'll serve, we'll serve the empire, we'll do whatever's necessary, but we cannot say that Caesar is Lord. It's kind of interesting because there were actually little documents that would be given out because if you would go and burn a little incense before an idol of the Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, you would be given a little bit of documentation that you carry around much like our driver's license. Not a, not a driver's license, okay? They didn't need a license to be able to drive a chariot. But it was, was kind of like a passport or some other documentation that if, if they needed something official, they could pull this out and say, see, I'm a good Roman citizen. And early Christians couldn't do it because they would not say Caesar is Lord. 
See, early Christians were thought to be a threat to the empire. That's why they were put in prison and chained. Not because of, of their morality. Not, and it was because of their religious beliefs. Because they wouldn't do this because of their religious beliefs. But the Romans didn't know what they believed. What they knew was these, Rome, uh, these Christians are not worshipping the Caesar. Therefore, they are a threat to the empire. You don't kill people that you think are weird. You kill people that you think are a threat to your way of life. Hopefully you don't do that. If you do, talk to me and I'm going to call the police immediately after this. But the Roman Empire was really good on letting people do whatever they want to do as long as it's not a threat to the empire. But the second it's a threat to the empire, they take care of business. And with early Christians, that is why they tortured them and they persecuted them because they saw them much like this. They saw them as a revolution wanting to change the empire. And the Roman Empire cared about itself. I mean, think about it. The American Revolution, it's it's not like the British did this thing and they said, oh, you want to start a new nation. That's awesome. Great. No, when, when the American Revolution started, Great Britain said, we don't want you separating from us. We don't want you forming a new nation. We will fight as a result of that. And our forefathers, for those of us in the room that are American, I assume all of us are, fought back because they wanted to start a new nation. Starting a new kingdom, starting a new empire is is revolutionary and it is disruptive. Jesus was disruptive. The church in Philippi did not just start from disruption, but it continued disruption. Which is why we will read, and I would encourage you to read the the letter to the Philippians every week. It'll take you about 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Just read it every week before we get here. You'll be amazed. You'll come here and you'll say, hey, and that reference is this, and that reference is this, and that reference is this. 20 minutes. But what you're going to see in there again and again and again is Paul says, hey, I know suffering's coming. I know you're suffering. There's still joy. Why do you think they were suffering? Because they started in in the gospel disrupting society. They started in the gospel disrupting the empire. They started in Jesus saying, I am going to form an entirely new kingdom and that's going to change everything. And they didn't just start in that, they continued in it. So, Before I end and tell you what I hope you get out of this, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? Okay. Then I want you to remember one word. See, I think, and maybe you're not this way, but for me, following Christ becomes easy sometimes. Following Christ doesn't become disruptive to my life. And every time I read the New Testament and I just really let God speak to me, what I begin to realize is He changes everything over and over and over again. Jesus is a disruptive influence because He's setting up a new kingdom in the midst of an old world. There's a reason that He calls us ambassadors. An ambassador is somebody who goes into another country and represents the new country. See, we live in an old world that still has an old kingdom mindset, but he has called us to be a part of his kingdom and that disrupts and changes everything because our loyalties become entirely different. And if Jesus has not disrupted your life recently, maybe you need to ask him 
if you're really listening to him. I don't mean by that that every day he's going to change everything. That would be pure chaos. And I do not believe that God is a God of chaos. He changes things though and then we have to live them out for a while. Some of us in the room can name times where God said, I want you to change this and it took us years to figure out how that was lived out. But it was disrupting our daily lives over and over and over again because our allegiances had changed. Maybe he wants to disrupt your, your week. Maybe he wants to disrupt your life. Maybe he wants to disrupt how you relate to your neighbors or lack of relation to your neighbors. Maybe he wants to disrupt what you see because maybe you've been driving around and not seeing the needs that he wants to be a part of reaching or, or seeing the people who he wants to be a part of sharing hope and love and joy through himself with. Maybe he wants to disrupt the way you see the entire world. It doesn't make it easy. Maybe he wants to disrupt some of the things you've been doing. Maybe he wants to disrupt some of the things you haven't been doing. Jesus is a disruption. But that's not because he messes up our lives in a bad way. It's because we live in a kingdom that is messed up and needs to be disruptive. His kingdom's good. Only reason it's ever viewed as a disruption is because we live in a world that's got our priorities mixed up. So this week, maybe pray and say, Jesus, how do you want to disrupt my life? And then maybe next week, tell us. Share it with everyone else so that we can begin to see Jesus a little better through each other's eyes. We can begin to understand how he disrupts our kingdoms to bring about his own. Let's pray before I lose my voice. Can you hear it going? (laughs) And uh, then let's sing to the one who is disruptive, but he's good. Join me in prayer, please. Father, thank you for the times you have disrupted my life so that I could see your kingdom. And forgive me for the times that I have just been too, too used to the status quo and I've been focused on my own kingdom instead. Your son taught us to pray that your kingdom would come. Help us not only to pray that, but to move for it. I pray this in his name. Amen. Let's sing together, please.